Hey, it's Guy here. In this episode, you're going to hear about the strange relationship between Bonobos, Burning Man, and prisoners on death row. And just a quick note, this show originally aired in March of 2015. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Here's a question to start the show with. Why is it sometimes so hard to feel empathy for strangers? Because you're stressed by them. You're stressed by them. Yeah. And I think this is something that, you know, people don't think about a lot, um, but it's true. This is Jeff Mogul. He's a neuroscientist at McGill University in Canada. I mean, for most of the history of our species, we were living in groups of, you know, 100 people or so. Uh, we knew all of them, and we didn't have empathy for strangers, but that was fine because we barely ever saw any strangers. Which is why today, if you take any two strangers and you put them in a room together as Jeff did in a recent study. You know, they weren't doing anything. They weren't uh, competing in any way. Um, but the very fact that you took two people and stuck them in a room and closed the door increased stress levels in both of them. It increased their heart rates and made their palms sweaty because... You're trying to figure out if you can trust them. You're trying to see if you have anything in common. It's harder to relate to them, to talk to them when you don't have any familiarity. This is Jane McGonigal. She's a video game designer. And Jane told us about Jeff's study. A great new study that just came out a couple of weeks ago. And Jeff wanted to test out the hypothesis that being around strangers creates stress, which decreases empathy. They tested this by using your perception of pain if you both plunge your hands into a freezing cold bucket of ice water. Um, for 30 seconds, and then they immediately take their hands out and they give a rating. And they would ask you to rate how painful it was and how much pain you thought the other person was feeling. And so Jeff gave each subject the pain test three times. Once with a stranger in the room, both of them plunge their hands into the water, once alone, nobody else in the room, and then one more time, but this time with a friend. And again, both of them plunged their hands into the water. And what we found was if they were tested across from their friend, their pain was worse than when they were tested by themselves. But if people were tested across from a stranger, their pain was the same as when they were tested by themselves. How does that make sense? Like you would think that if you're across from your friend, it would be okay because your friend is there and you would it wouldn't be as painful because you're both you going would. through this thing, right? You would, wouldn't yeah, you? That's right. the amazing thing about it. And the only explanation is that the pain from your friend is adding to your own pain just a little bit, making your experience of your own pain worse. This is a form of empathy called emotional contagion. And what Jeff found is that it happens between friends but not between strangers. The stranger's pain doesn't affect you at all. Wow. So we're really, like, wired not to care about strangers. Um, yeah. I mean, hmm. yes. <laughs> that sort of sucks. <laughs> I guess so. So the uh, final question for Jeff Mogul and his researchers at McGill University was, could there be a way to reduce stress and create empathy between two strangers who had just met? These researchers found that you can essentially reduce the level of stress that you have interacting with a stranger to nothing by playing rock band for 15 minutes. Rock band, the video game, of course, where you play plastic instruments. You play the drums, I play the guitar. They were working together for the same score. It's a pretty cooperative game. And for 15 minutes, you play this game together, you will then test at the same level of stress as you would with one of your closest friends. So in just 15 minutes, if you played rock band with just a stranger, you would start to feel empathy toward them? 
that's what we showed. So um, what was blocking the uh, empathy effect in strangers was stress. And playing rock band together blocked the stress. Blocked the stress, the empathy can emerge. You would literally feel their pain more. Wow. If you had played a video game with them. Jane McGonigal has actually done a lot of this kind of research herself. I'm a researcher of games and how they change how we think and act in our real lives. And Jane, like the other TED speakers on the show today, has wondered how play can make us better at other things in life, whether it can make us healthier, more creative, more social. And as we'll hear, play can mean a lot of things, like building a treehouse or pulling off an elaborate prank, or in Jane's case, playing video games. I don't know about you. I'm so sick of talking about the same things when it comes to games. All the things that we worry about, our kids aren't getting enough exercise, or, oh, there's so much violence in popular media. I mean, these things are all true. But at the end of the day, how does it help us take advantage of the beneficial aspects of games? It doesn't. We'll hear more from Jane later in the show, but now, a story about a different kind of play, uniting total strangers. I moved to New York uh, right after college. I was 22 years old. Charlie Todd moved to New York from a small town in South Carolina. He had dreams of being a comedian. This was about 15 years ago. But soon he was stuck in a desk job, a worker bee under fluorescent lights. And it was boring. So Charlie decided to make his own fun. What would, what would you do? So I would just do weird things. Like I remember I had a temp job and the um, boss asked me to throw away a bunch of phones. And they're the big black business phones that have like 10 lines on them. And I saved one and took it out in the street. And as I was walking from work to the subway, I pretended as though it was a cell phone. I, I attached it to my belt, like put it through my belt loop, and then just was like having a conversation with a corded black business telephone. Just walking down the street, just talking on the phone. Just walking down the street. Just to see, am I, are people going to look at me? What kind of reaction might I get? I would like to see somebody doing that, so I should go do it. This, Charlie realized, was play. Play is is doing an activity that has no end goal other than the fact that it's fun. It's taking an ordinary place or an ordinary time and, and finding something extraordinary about it. So Charlie founded an improv group devoted to that idea. And for one of their first really big stunts, Charlie thought, I need to do something totally absurd. So I started thinking about what the funniest possible thing could be, and riding the subway in your underwear is what I came up with in the middle of winter. The first stop of the prank, doors open, I got on, wearing a winter coat, a hat, scarf, gloves, got headphones on, acting very nonchalant. Except that Charlie wasn't wearing any pants. Some people in the subway car notice. A girl sort of looks me up and down and tries to figure out what's going on. But it's New York. There's a weirdo without pants on in the train. I'm going to ignore that. The next stop, the doors open, and a different guy gets on in his boxer shorts as well. And that was the point where people started laughing. And that continued for seven stops in a row with people getting on in their underwear. Here's the rest of the story as told by Charlie on the TED stage. At the eighth stop, a girl came in with a giant duffel bag and announced she had pants for sale for a dollar. Like, you might sell batteries or candy on the train. We all very matter-of-factly bought a pair of pants, put them on, and said, thank you, that's exactly what I needed today. And then exited without revealing what had happened and went in all different directions. And for Charlie's improv group, which today is called Improv Everywhere, the subway prank was just the beginning. I got an email from a high school kid in Texas who said, you should put as many people as possible wearing blue polo shirts and khaki pants inside a Best Buy and have them stand around. <laughs> so as you know, that is the employee uniform of a Best Buy employee, <laughs> a blue polo shirt and khaki pants. So essentially, give the store a mob of extra employees. So I wrote this high school kid back immediately, and he said, yes, you are correct. I think I'll try to do that this weekend. Thank you. And I told people, don't work. Don't actually do work, but also don't shop. Just stand around and don't face products. 
The lower level employees thought it was very funny, and in fact, lot, several of them went to go get their camera from the break room and took photos with us. A lot of them made jokes about trying to get us to go to the back to get heavy television sets for customers. <laughs> The uh, managers and the security guards, on the other hand, did not find it particularly funny. Uh, you can see them in this footage. They're wearing either a yellow shirt or a black shirt. And we were there for probably about 10 minutes before the manager decided to dial 911. <laughs> so they started running around telling everybody that the cops were coming, watch out, the cops are coming. Ultimately, the police had to inform Best Buy management that it was not, in fact, illegal to wear a blue polo shirt and khaki pants. <laughs> So I'm I'm guessing that some like people come up to you and they're like, like what's the point of all this? So what do you what do you say? The goal of Improv Everywhere is to stage something that is so funny that it breaks other people out of their day to day routines and gives them a positive experience and a funny story to tell. I mean, I grew up working retail at my father's retail store, growing up in South Carolina, and. There's those days where you've, you know, worked a eight-hour shift and you've been on your feet all day and, you know, you're just dying for something interesting to happen, something out of the ordinary to happen. So that was the goal of that project is that for the people who work in that Best Buy, maybe not the managers and the security guards, but, but the people that were working on the floor, to have some bizarre, unusual thing happen that they'll be talking about for the rest of their lives. Uh, so I'd say over the years, one of the most common criticisms I see of improv everywhere left anonymously in YouTube comments is, these people have too much time on their hands. <laughs> and, you know, that one's always bothered me because we don't have too much time on our hands. The participants in improv everywhere events have just as much leisure time as any other New Yorkers. They just occasionally choose to spend it in an unusual way. You know, every Saturday and Sunday, hundreds of thousands of people each fall gather in football stadiums to watch games. And I've never seen anybody comment looking at a football game and saying, all those people in the stands, they have too much time on their hands. And of course they don't. It's a perfectly wonderful way to spend a weekend afternoon watching a football game in, an, in a stadium. But I think it's also a perfectly valid way to spend an afternoon freezing in place with 200 people in the Grand Central Terminal or dressing up like a Ghostbuster and running through the New York Public Library. You know, as kids, we're taught to play, and we're never given a reason why we should play. It's just acceptable that play is a good thing. And I think that's sort of the point of improv everywhere. Is it's that there is no point, and that there doesn't have to be a point. We don't need a reason. As long as it's fun, and it seems like it's going to be a funny idea, and it seems like the people who witness it will also have a fun time, then that's enough for us. And I think as adults, we need to learn that there's no right or wrong way to play. Thank you very much. Charlie Todd, his improv group is called Improv Everywhere. You can see his entire talk at ted.npr.org. I'm Guy Raz. More ideas about the power of play in a moment. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to Slack. Millions of people around the world rely on Slack to get their work done. For them, Slack is where all the people and tools they need to work are gathered, where ideas form, evolve, and reach fruition, where plans are proposed, documents exchanged, expenses approved, travel booked, and deals signed off, where decisions are made and consensus is reached where the humdrum becomes the easily done. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. Thanks also to Gillette. Did you know the tip of a Gillette razor blade is thinner than a single brain cell? That precision is the work of many brain cells. The hundreds of men and women at Gillette's research and development team have spent over 4,700 years combined working to make your shave closer and more comfortable. And now you can get blades for less. Visit Gillette.com slash lower prices. Gillette, the best a man can get. Pricing applies to select products and is at the sole discretion of the retailer. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And today on the show, press play. Ideas about why we play and why we shouldn't stop when we grow up. 
And if you're investigating the field of play, you kind of have to talk to Stuart Brown. I'm the founder and president of the National Institute for Play, and I hope, even at my advanced years, still a player. Stuart is 82, and his organization, the National Institute for Play, funds research that explores the power of play. And not just for children, but for grown-ups, too. What happens when you walk into the Institute of Play? Are there just, like, board games everywhere and trampolines and, like, rubber walls and clowns juggling? I love your imagination, Guy. (laughs) My Institute for Play is a separate little office that sits about 100 feet from my house. It's got a treehouse that's 30 feet over it with wild turkeys walking around, a rope hanging for people to swing on. It's it's like a real treehouse? It's a real treehouse. It has skylights, stained glass windows. I got a bunch of grandkids, so particularly when they were younger, it was a magical place to storytell and and listen to the trees creak and that sort of thing. So it's a grand little spot. Today, Stuart Brown is one of the world's top experts on play. But the story of how he got there starts in a much darker place. This is not something that you you ever intended to, to research, right? Not at all. Yeah. So what's the story? Well, I remember it very vividly. It all started on August 1st, 1966. Stewart was a young psychiatry professor at Baylor University in Texas. I was walking down the Baylor Hall, moving to my office as assistant professor of psychiatry, carrying books, and the dean of Baylor, Stanley Olson, was walking down the hall with a, with a portable radio. The time is 5.30. And the radio was broadcasting live from Austin, which is some distance from Houston, of course, and you could hear gunshots. It started last night. A man reportedly killed his wife and his mother. That same man apparently rounded up an arsenal and supplies this morning and then went to the observation deck of the University of Texas Tower. It was then that terror rained down from the tower. Charles J. Whitman. Charles Whitman. A 25-year-old Marine veteran who earned a sharpshooter rating while on active duty. He was identified by police as the sniper. Sirens screamed for the 90 minutes that the gun battle was in progress. And this was live. By official count tonight, 49 persons were hit by gunfire, 16 dead, and 33 injured which was then the largest mass murder in the U.S. But from the time the first call came in to the UT police at 11.48 a.m. At that time, Stuart Brown had coincidentally been studying the psychology of aggression. So my boss said, well, I want you to try and figure out why this young man, why he perpetrated this horrible crime. And uh, we were going to try and reconstruct the life and times of Charles Whitman, which we did in great detail. So this was a mystery. I mean, you were trying to figure out what the factors were that led to the shooting. Well, you know, there had been a number of factors, of course. Whitman's father was an expert in firearms. Whitman was a crack shot, a history of violence and abuse. The father beat the mother virtually mercilessly about once a month, and he was bipolar. Uh, And then he found out something else, something very specific about Charles's childhood. Well, we found out that the neighbors who I interviewed and who I interviewed again 20 years later had never seen little Charles Whitman engaged in what would have been considered spontaneous free play. Whenever he was crawling and exploring, the father would punish him. And when he was four years old, his father insisted he start playing the piano. And if he didn't practice when he was four and five years old, the father would beat him. His preschool teacher described him as too good, sitting in the corner and waiting to get a cue from the teacher as to how to behave rather than having the kind of anarchic, full-of-yourself playfulness that's a normal childhood play. After researching Charles Whitman, Stewart thought that maybe missing out on childhood play could leave a mark, and in this case, a devastating one. But Charles Whitman was just one research subject. And so I went to one prison, the Huntsville prison in Texas. Where Stuart Brown was able to meet 26 convicted murderers. 
and interview them. Now, Huntsville, I should mention, is one of the most infamous prisons in America. And what Stewart found there, in every case, the same story. The lack of rough-and-tumble play in all 26 of these young murderers we studied and their lack of empathy appeared to me, and I say appeared to me, to be linked. And when you listen closely to a developmental trajectory in a person who has a real sense of putting themselves in the shoes of another, you go back into their histories and you hear them say, you know, when I was on a playground, I punched a kid once and he started to cry. And I began to realize that if he did that to me, it would hurt. So I didn't do it again. And there is this sort of learned empathy that comes from interaction, direct interaction with others. For years after studying those murderers in Huntsville, Stewart continued to research the childhoods of people like them and like Charles Whitman, and in particular, how a lack of play could have affected their brains. It's very serious if it's early on in early development, let's say from seven or eight months to five years, and it's missing, that's really serious. But at any point in a lifetime, whether it's your lifetime now or mine in my early 80s, it is a very necessary part of being human. And so when you are in a state of play, part of your frontal lobe gets unhooked and a lot more associations that are all over the rest of the brain kind of join in like a symphony. So although this is not quantifiable and good science yet, there is a lot of evidence from the animal world that play lights up the brain like nothing else. And in the process, we get new connections, sort of new maps, and we also get mood uplift. We also get other kinds of connectedness that I think is good for us. But what about like grown-ups? I mean, do you think that, that play can keep shaping and, and developing our brains? I mean, even as fully developed adults? Absolutely. I think there's evidence that it can. The, there really are some very heartening signs, even in a dementia ward, that when you bring play into uh, a dementia setting that is specified for the play type that that person once enjoyed, that their need for medication and their level of agitation goes down as they, they get playful. So this is part of from birth to death, there is a presence in our beings for playfulness. That makes total sense to me, but I also think that a lot of adults, you know, have sort of forgot how to do it, how to play. Well, I've got a friend by the name of Joe Meeker. He says, carry a ball with you. You can toss it into any group anywhere, and they'll throw it back, and you can start playing. Yeah, I don't know. I'm in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of lawyers here. If you hit somebody on the head, like, <laughs> it'd sue you or something, you know? Yeah, that's true. Well, make sure it's a soft ball like a yeah, tennis ball. Yeah, it has to be really soft. Yeah. <laughs> In his talk, Stuart Brown described one more way that play might keep us healthy. In the animal world, uh, if you take rats who, have, who are hardwired to play at a certain period of their juvenile years, they squeak, they wrestle, they pin each other, that's part of their play. If you stop that behavior on one group that you're experimenting with and you allow it in another group that you're experimenting with, and then you present those rats with a cat odor-saturated collar. They're hardwired to flee and hide. But the non-players never come out. They die. The players slowly explore the environment and begin again to test things out. That says to me that play may be pretty important for our survival. Stewart says you see the same sort of results in other mammals and especially in intelligent ones, including primates and humans. What you see from their play clearly is that they explore options that they wouldn't explore otherwise if they hadn't played. 
So the exploration of the possible, I think, is one of the cliches about what play does. The capacity for play seems to me to allow us to take in novelty and newness, use it to adapt and become more flexible, and also have a good time in the process. The opposite of play is not work, it's depression. And I think if you think about life without play, no humor, no flirtation, no movies, no games, no fantasy, and, and, and. Try and imagine a culture or a life, adult or otherwise, without play. And the thing that's so unique about our species is that we're really designed to play through our whole lifetime. So what I would encourage you on an individual level to do is to explore backwards as far as you can go to the most clear, joyful, playful image that you have, whether it's with a toy or on a birthday or on a vacation, and begin to build from the motion of that into how that connects with your life now. And you'll find you may change jobs, which has happened to a number of people in, when, when I've had them do this in order to be more empowered through their play, or you'll be able to enrich your life by, by prioritizing it and paying attention to it. That's Stuart Brown. He runs the National Institute for Play. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So while it might be hard for some adults to value a certain kind of unstructured play, that might depend on your species. My name is Isabel Benke. Isabel's a primatologist. Uh, that means that I study the social behavior of primates. And early in her career, during a research study... In a zoo in England, when I was comparing the behavior of chimpanzees and bonobos. Isabel started to notice something with the bonobos in particular. Apart from this incredible tolerant nature that bonobos have, they seem to play a lot. Lots of chasing, laughing, and so on for hours. And it wasn't just the kid bonobos that played. It was the adults as well. And that is really unusual. It's unusual because while almost every kid mammal plays, when they grow up, they stop playing. At least most species, including humans. But in just a handful. You get this apparently weird phenomena that the adults play. I mean, so are, are bonobos like outliers? Yes, bonobos are outliers. So many other uh, adult primates play, chimpanzees, for instance, but they are outliers in the extent of the play, how much they play. You know, if I show you the network of play, it's amazing because basically everyone plays with almost everyone. And that's very, very unusual. So Isabel thought perhaps play, at least for bonobos, wasn't frivolous. That's why I realized, gosh, maybe there's something about the complexity of play, in particular adult play, that is related to intelligence, to basically creativity, to trust. In other words, maybe play is essential for their survival. But to find out, Isabel needed to get out of the zoo. And so she thought, let's try and find adult play in the wild. So off she went to the jungles of Congo to study one particular family of bonobos. This is a group called the Kamekake group. There's around 30 bonobos. How do you study them? Like, Do you like film them or do you just sort of hang out behind bushes and just kind of watch them quietly? I would love that it's just the hanging out behind bushes part. It's rather following them through the jungle wherever they go because it's studying a wild community. So that means that I have walked around 3,000 kilometers in learning their behavior. Can you describe what you, what you were seeing? What were they doing? How were they playing? So first of all, they chase, they bite, they tickle. Many times they laugh. A bonobo laugh, it turns out, sounds like this. Um, there's other types of play where it's also this relationship between risk-taking, trust, and ambiguity. For instance, imagine an adult sitting on a high branch, okay? Then a smaller individual comes, say a juvenile, and the adult grabs 
the arm of the urinal and then balances him from the branch, right? So he could let him go and he doesn't, but obviously he trusts him. And by the time Isabel left Congo, she realized that for bonobos, play is a kind of social glue. The group is actually connected through play, through this sense of joy, of positive emotion that spreads and creates more positive emotion and trust in turn. When you observe this, did you start to think, I wonder how this relates to us, to humans, and in our relationship with play? Yes, we share a common root for play. Our reward system in our brains, it's overdeveloped, so obviously we have a capacity for positive emotion and joy that has been an important drive in our evolution. You see live expressions of this root in normal human behavior, anything from expression in fashion to competitive sports to literature, of course, that's where you suspend your belief and you go into these fictional worlds quite happily because that's what play does. It suspends reality. Things that don't usually happen can happen. So we train our brain to explore all these different worlds safely. Here's Isabel's TED Talk. Bonobos, like humans, love to play throughout their entire lives. Play is not just child's games. For us and them, play is foundational for bonding relationships and fostering tolerance. It's where we learn to trust and where we learn about the rules of the game. Play increases creativity and resilience. And it's all about the generation of diversity. Diversity of interactions, diversity of behaviors, diversity of connections. And when you watch Bonobo play, you're seeing the very evolutionary roots of human laughter, dance, and ritual. But they also hold a secret for our future, a future where we need to adapt to an increasingly challenging world through greater creativity and greater cooperation. The secret is that play is the key to these capacities. In other words, play is our adaptive wildcard. In order to adapt successfully to a changing world, we need to play. But will we make the most? of our playfulness. Play is not frivolous. For bonobos and humans alike, life is not just red in tooth and claw. In times when it seems least appropriate to play, it might be the times when it's most urgent. So if play is so important, then how much play do we need, do humans need? We'll hear more from Isabel Benke and her ideas about play in just a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Hubble Contacts. If you've overpaid for your contact lenses or overworn them to save money, Hubble Contacts offers you an affordable and convenient solution. Hubble Contacts sends quality daily lenses directly to you, so they can offer them at a low price. Go to hubblecontacts.com, sign up, and enjoy your first two weeks of lenses for free. Hubble Contacts. Thanks also to Google Cloud Platform. Use machine learning at scale to build better products. Google Cloud's AI provides modern machine learning services that enables you to easily build models that work on any type of data of any size. Their platform is now available as a cloud service to bring unmatched scale and speed to your business applications. It predicts so your business can thrive. Learn more about Google Cloud Platform or visit cloud.google.com. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, ideas about play. And also about how some of our closest relatives play. In particular, bonobos. They, they are great apes. We've been talking with primatologist Isabel Banke, who spent a lot of time in the Congolese jungles studying bonobos, where she got the idea that play for humans like bonobos isn't just for fun. Think of human festivals, okay? 
humans have had festivals since ancient times. We know hunter-gatherers had festivals. These things that humans have always done, not necessarily frequent, are crucial to bonding groups, to extending networks, to creating trust, to developing creativity, and also just the sheer joy. I think it's a very important element of our existential life. And in fact, um, one of my current projects, it's exactly that. I am observing adult play of humans and what I call adult play in the wild. For instance, one of the field sites is Burning Man. Okay, you've probably heard of Burning Man. It takes place in the deserts of northern Nevada every year. Think art festival crossed with a dance and costume party in a giant utopian village. It's like a, a free-for-all of self-expression. Oh, hey there! It's you! I'm so glad you made it! This, by the way, is from a documentary on Burning Man. It's a week long of different expressions of play. Come on, let's go do some Burning Man right now. Which obviously in humans take different forms. You know, bonobos don't necessarily go around in costume. But there are all these common traits. Joy, laughter. Oh my God! And you will see that people immediately connect to each other, laugh, are willing to make fun of themselves, engage with people that they didn't know before. It is amazing. Tell me about your experience. How was it sliding down the slide? It's a lot scarier than it looks, but it's so much fun. People taking risks. Play loves risk, and play loves ambiguity and uncertainty in a way that, you know, in other situations, we hate uncertainty. So wait, you go to Burning Man with like like a notepad and a lab coat and you just like walk around? So um, I ditched the lab coat a long time ago. But yes, this is the idea exactly, to look at playing the wild, both in humans and non-humans. And that's how you get to kind of common principles. Okay, so a lot of people think of Burning Man as like a bunch of flaky people, like dancing around, you know, crazy in, in like the deserts in Nevada. But I have met people, like several people who have told me, Oh, yeah. I mean, Burning Man has changed my life. And hearing you talk about it as as this example of human adults in, in a habitat, natural habitat, playing or being uninhibited enough to play, it seems to all make sense. Um, yes. Generally speaking, I think obviously adult play is a route for personal transformation. And festivals like Burning Man allow for that to happen. And I see enduring friendships being formed. I see people exploring and pushing their limits that they perhaps wouldn't have dared to do before, that then they take that back to their lives and goes, yes, I can feel different. I can explore and um, express myself in these different ways. Just the sheer effect of experiencing joy, I think also liberates and changes people at the core. To explore the world is fun, and there's something very important in our consciousness that lights up the world, that makes us feel alive about play. Primatologist Isabel Benke, check out her full talk at ted.npr.org. Of course, for a lot of people today, play is nothing like Burning Man. Often, it's more like this. Super Mario Brothers, one of the most popular video games of all time. This one and other games like it take up a lot of our time. On the computers, the consoles, the iPads, the phones, there are a billion people now on the planet who spend, on average, an hour a day playing games on connected devices. That is, as Jane McGonigal says, a billion hours a year. Jane researches video games. We heard from her earlier in the show. And she's trying to challenge the idea that those billion hours of video game play are a waste of time. Here's part of her TED Talk. Now, this may surprise you, but it turns out there is actually some scientific research on this question. It's true. Hospice workers, the people who take care of us at the end of our lives, recently issued a report on the most frequently expressed regrets that people say when they are literally on their deathbeds. 
I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had let myself be happier. Now, as far as I know, no one ever told one of the hospice workers, I wish I'd spent more time playing video games. But when I hear these regrets of the dying, I can't help but hear deep human cravings that games actually help us fulfill. For example, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. For many people, this means I wish I'd spent more time with my family, with my kids when they were growing up. Well, we know that playing games together has tremendous family benefits. A recent study from Brigham Young University's School of Family Life reported that parents who spend more time playing video games with their kids have much stronger real-life relationships with them. I wish I'd stay in touch with my friends. Well, hundreds of millions of people use social games like Farmville or Words with Friends to stay in daily contact with real-life friends and family. A recent study from Michigan University showed that these games are incredibly powerful relationship management tools. They help us stay connected with people in our social network that we would otherwise grow distant from if we weren't playing games together. I wish I'd let myself be happier. Well, here I can't help but think of the groundbreaking clinical trials recently conducted at East Carolina University that showed that online games can outperform pharmaceuticals for treating clinical anxiety and depression. Just 30 minutes of online gameplay a day was enough to create dramatic boosts in mood and long-term increases in happiness. So I, I get, like, you're surrounded by this research and all this evidence, but I, I wonder, like, when you play video games and you're indoors and you're alone and maybe you're not even moving that much, like, I'm wondering how that really improves us. Oh, and I fully concede that people who worry about that have some very compelling evidence on their side. For example, we know that the average Call of Duty player spends the equivalent of one month of full-time work every single year playing wow. Call of Duty. So it does make you worry, is this a good investment of time doing something that we know in anywhere between 3 to 8% of active game players identify as addicted and self-identify as having negative impacts on their real lives. That's actually where I've focused my research over the past three years trying to figure out what makes a difference between somebody who is going to spend 20 hours a week playing video games who will have positive impacts on their lives as a result. So, Would you like to know what that difference is? Yeah, please. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> so the number one thing is whether they are trying to avoid feelings or thinking about problems if they view games as this escape. But there is another kind of player who play games with family members because they want to spend quality time together or they know they're stressed out after a bad day at school or work and they want to be in a better mood before they tackle their homework or a project they brought home. And that's the only difference. There's tons of studies have shown if you are able to feel like gameplay is part of your everyday real life, then you are far less likely to see a negative impact on real life goals. So the redemptive power of playing games is an idea that Jane McGonigal has been studying for most of her academic career. And a few years ago, she got the chance to test that idea on herself in real life. It started two years ago when I hit my head and got a concussion. Now, the concussion didn't heal properly, and after 30 days, I was left with symptoms like nonstop headaches, nausea, vertigo, memory loss, mental fog. My doctor told me that in order to heal my brain, I had to rest it, so I had to avoid everything that triggered my symptoms. For me, that meant no reading, no writing, no video games, no work or email, no running, no alcohol, no caffeine. In other words, and I think you see where this is going, no reason to live. <laughs> Of course, it's meant to be funny, but in all seriousness, suicidal ideation is quite common with traumatic brain injuries. It happens to one in three, and it happened to me. My brain started telling me, Jane, you want to die. It said, you're never going to get better. It said, the pain will never end. And these voices became so persistent and so persuasive that I started to legitimately fear for my life. Which 
is the time that I said to myself after 34 days, and I will never forget this moment, I said, I am either gonna kill myself or I'm gonna turn this into a game. Now, why a game? Well, I knew from researching the psychology of games for more than a decade that when we play a game, and this is in the scientific literature, we tackle tough challenges with more creativity, more determination, more optimism, and we're more likely to reach out to others for help. And I wanted to bring these gamer traits to my real-life challenge. So I created a role-playing recovery game called Jane the Concussion Slayer. Now, this became my new secret identity. And the first thing I did as a slayer was call my twin sister, I have an identical twin sister named Kelly, and tell her, I'm playing a game to heal my brain, and I want you to play with me. This was an easier way to ask for help. She became my first ally in the game. My husband, Kiosh, joined next. And together, we identified and battled the bad guys. Now, this was anything that could trigger my symptoms and therefore slow down the healing process, things like bright lights and crowded spaces. We also collected and activated power-ups. This was anything I could do on even my worst day to feel just a little bit good, just a little bit productive. Things like cuddling my dog for 10 minutes or getting out of bed and walking around the block just once. The game was that simple. Adopt a secret identity, recruit allies, battle bad guys. It wasn't a video game. It was just a new game-like way of approaching a problem. And amazingly, after just a few days of play, Jane's fog of depression and anxiety began to fade. It just vanished. It, it felt like a miracle. Now, it wasn't a miracle cure for the headaches or the cognitive symptoms. That lasted for more than a year, and it was the hardest year of my life by far. But even when I still had the symptoms, even while I was still in pain, I stopped suffering. Now, what happened next with the game surprised me. I put up some blog posts and videos online explaining how to play, but not everybody has a concussion, obviously. Not everyone wants to be the slayer, so I renamed the game Super Better. And soon I started hearing from people all over the world who were adopting their own secret identity, recruiting their own allies, and they were getting super better, facing challenges like cancer and chronic pain, depression and Crohn's disease, and I could tell from their messages that the game was helping them in the same ways that it helped me. Hi, I'm Mike, and I'm getting super better from depression. And Thousands of people have played super better through an interactive website that Jane built, and some of them have kept video diaries. My super better challenge is sleeping better. To each day take a creative photograph lowering my stress to lose 45 to 50 pounds and controlling anxiety. Watching the so success of her game, function. Jane began to wonder what exactly she had tapped into. So she spent the next couple of years doing more research to understand the brain chemistry of gaming so that I could understand better why this game helped me and why it's helped so many other people. One thing that I know now is that games do a very powerful job of increasing the amount of dopamine in your brain. Dopamine is one of those brain chemicals that makes you feel good. You get it from exercise, you get it from food. And when you play a game, you get it because... Every time you make a prediction or you take an action that could potentially have a positive result, your brain increases dopamine because it helps you learn. So in Superbetter, for example, by taking a big goal and breaking it into lots of tiny ones, Jane was able to create a bunch of small opportunities for players to succeed. And those opportunities were called power-ups. Now that I'm so far into Super Better, I, I almost feel like there's a ding that goes off on my head. And then I'm like, oh, hey, I just did a power-up. Um, and with each power-up, more dopamine in the brain. Until those little victories begin to add up. I just got back from the gym and I'm recording this just because I'm so excited to tell you that I have actually reached my weight loss goal already in week five. Uh, I'm thrilled. <laughs> so this is awesome. When we're in game worlds, I believe that many of us become the best version of ourselves, the most likely to help at a moment's notice, the most likely to stick with a problem as long as it takes to get up after failure and try again. Um, and in real life, 
When we, when we face failure, when we confront obstacles, we often don't feel that way. We feel overcome, we feel overwhelmed, we feel anxious, maybe depressed, frustrated, or cynical. We never have those feelings when we're playing games. They just don't exist in games. Yeah, so like, it seems to me that it's not even necessarily about video games, but it's that video games are what most people are playing. So I don't know, we might as well figure out a way to make them work for us. Absolutely. I have come to realize that video games are just one way to develop this incredibly powerful toolkit of psychological resources. So I call this gameful psychology, right? It's, it's a way of looking at challenges. It's a way of generating social support. It's a way of activating positive emotions when you're facing something difficult. That's why video games, to me, are so exciting when we think about how might we treat depression or anxiety differently? How might we help people achieve their health goals. It's not that they need to play more video games or that video games are going to be the path to achieving these goals. It's that so many people have already cultivated these psychological strengths, and I want to help them bring those strengths to their real lives. Jane McGonigal, video game designer. She's got three TED Talks all up at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show Press Play this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Chris Benderev with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You ever find yourself in a conversation about race and identity where you just get stuck? NPR's Code Switch podcast can help. I'm Gene Demby. Code Switch is a podcast that helps us understand how race and identity crash into everything else in our lives, including how a diverse and creative generation of writers and actors is forging new paths. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.